Podcast, 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 pod. <laughs> now, I picked that one because it's the only one that has singing. It doesn't have lyrics, but it does at one point have, you know, a, a choir singer being like, oh, very <laughs> so, true. So there you go. That's that's that. Maybe our podcast has graduated. There you go. Maybe we're at a podcast wedding. Uh. <laughs> Either way, let's let's go ahead and uh, get into the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to me, mom, mom's mom, and the mouse, <laughs> a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your extended family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. I'm Isaac Coleman. I'm joined, as always, by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello. And I am joined, for the first time, by my grandmother, Becky Samdahl. Hi. Hello, Grandma. How are you doing today? Great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Recording a podcast. It's not dinosaur yet. Yay. So that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Nor is it what else we got coming up home on the range, (laughs) Um, because we are, of course, this week continuing Disney's grim experimental era. It's not all grim. (laughs) It's not all grim. Disney's roller coaster of an experimental era with 1999's Fantasia 2000 directed by now buckle up for this one. It's been a while (laughs) since we had to do this live action sequences directed by Don Hahn. Animated segments directed in order by Pihote Hunt, Henda Butoy, Eric Goldberg, thank goodness for that one, <laughs> James Algar, Francis Gleba, and Paul and Gaetan Brizy, the Brizy brothers who we talked about on the Hunchback of Notre Dame episode, mm-hmm. the heads of Disney Animation France. And so that's all of our directors. And, of course, we do want to give a special shout-out to our editor, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Brad, thanks for all the work that you do turning our ashing, blighted podcast (laughs) into something that is green and growing and full of life. (laughs) I really had to work to find anything to say in a movie with no dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) But, Grandma, one of the things we we say on this podcast is that we're, you know, uh, a Disney family going back four generations, right? Me, mom, your mother, and your mother's mother. What sort of, what does Disney mean to you, I guess, is is a good place to start? Well, it's been uh, pretty close growing up, going to see the movies from as far back as I can remember. Um, This is a little early maybe, but I remember when we went to see the movie Fantasia at the theater. I don't remember how old I was, you know, which showing it was, but when Grandpa Lee and I were dating and I was talking about Disney and he said, oh, it would be so boring to go see a Disney movie. (laughs) And I said, what? What's wrong with you? (laughs) And I made him take me to see Actually, we went and saw a song in the South, if I remember right, back when they were showing that at the theater. And another, you know, it was a double feature. I can't remember now what the other thing was. But anyway, so we used that for dating. (laughs) We went to the Disneyland park, the park. When I was in the third grade, uh, we were living in Los Angeles. Well, my dad went to IBM school and 
we went out one day for a drive and they just said we were we weren't going anywhere special. We were just going for a drive. But we actually went to Disneyland as a surprise. And the other big thing was when my dad went to the World's Fair in 1964 through with IBM. He came home so excited for us to go see Small World. I never knew he got to go to that World's Fair. Oh, you didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes, he was at that World's Fair. Wow, I've heard so much about that World's Fair now. <laughs> yeah, because you probably watched stuff on Disney Plus about it. We did. So anyway, he was there. Then, of course, I worked at the Disney store. I worked at three different ones, two in the San Jose area and then one out in Sarasota, Florida, and because of that, we went to the parks even more because we got free passes. Yeah, that was cool. And we were only two hours away from Walt Disney World. So, well, and even when we still lived in California and we wanted to meet up with Christopher's dad, we met at Disneyland and I got him into the park for free and we spent a bunch of time together. So Disney means a lot. <laughs> Glad you converted dad into it because, you know, otherwise you'd have had to, you know, give him up for someone else. <laughs> I know, right? He Well, he was somewhat into it and into the park, you know, when because they always had IBM night. But he just thought he'd outgrown the movies. Right. <laughs> so I know that we offered you, you know, basically like here are all the movies we have left to do. You can pick one. You selected Fantasia 2000. Uh, what is it about this movie that, you know, you wanted to come on and talk about? What does this movie mean to you in in the parlance of the pod? <laughs> right. Um, well, as I mentioned, I'd seen Fantasia even in the theater, as well as then owning it when it finally came out on to VHS. And I always just loved the movie. Uh, we, as you mentioned, I think it was on the original one about Fantasia being a musical family. Yeah. You know, I grew up with music all around me because my parents were both involved in music in high school and stuff. So when I found out that they were going to come out with Fantasia 2000, well, it wasn't Fantasia 2000 at first, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> when I found out that they were making a new one, I was really excited. And I worked at the Disney store when it started, you know, getting close enough to be talked about and named, etc., so that I could get a little bit of inside information because of that. And I got the CD ahead of time uh, with all the songs from the movie. And um, I felt like even though I had nothing to do with the making of it, I felt like because I worked for Disney that I had a small piece of that movie. Mm-hmm. When we went to see it, which I know you'll be mentioning more about, but it was only in IMAX at first, we had to drive to Orlando. And I was just, I was so excited. I just couldn't wait to see it. I was just, and um, it definitely exceeded my expectations. Yeah. Being, of course, the IMAX. And then you just felt so immersed in it. And I just, by the end, I was crying. It was just just so meaningful to me. It is beautiful. I, I can totally believe crying at the ending, especially it would be great to see this 
in IMAX. Unfortunately, Disney doesn't really do repertory screenings now. They don't really show their old movies back in theaters. I mean, they're not that interested in theaters these days in general. In <laughs> fairness, there is a pandemic on. But, uh, you know, it would maybe for some big anniversary, it'll come back. Right. I could definitely see if they ever do a Fantasia three. And I do not see modern Disney doing that, but we can certainly dream. No. You know, then they might they might bring them back. But uh, well, who knows? Another 60 years. That's right. We, <laughs> oh, yeah, right. That's all we need. Exactly. It'll be Fantasia 2060. <laughs> it will be showing on the last theater left. Yeah, you'll have to <laughs> wheel me in in the wheelchair. That's right. We definitely will. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh, yep. you'll be a brain in a jar by that point, but <laughs> that'll be modern medicine. You'll have a big robot body. I who knows what the future holds. <laughs> Mom, what does this uh, what does this movie mean to you? Well, I also, of course, loved Fantasia and was excited about it. We also went and saw it in the IMAX. We didn't have to go as far, at least, but we did get to go see that. And it was a lot of fun. And when it came out on, you know, home video, I got the DVD set that's um, both Fantasia and Fantasia 2000 in the single box set. So it actually has three discs because there's both the movies and an extra bonus features disc. Right. And I've owned that probably since... 2000, 2001, whenever that came out. Yeah, November 14th, 2000. So that probably would have made a, a, you know, a good holiday gift. It was probably a very nice holiday gift for me. I'm sure somebody gave me. <laughs> could have even been you, Mom. Oh, could have been. <laughs> we didn't have Blue, not Blu-ray, but we didn't have a DVD player back then. Yeah, I don't think we'd had one for very long. This was our first DVD of the Disney animated canon. That's right. Unfortunately, I don't have any uh, special relationship to this movie. Well, you were all of four when it came out. Yeah, I don't think before we started this podcast, I could have told you with confidence uh, which segments were in which movie. I definitely watched both a lot. I'll say I remember the first Fantasia a lot more. I'm sure I've seen this one several times as well. And the Firebird sequence, interestingly, is the one I remember the best. Uh, But it was great to revisit it. It was especially great to revisit it, understanding kind of the history behind what I was seeing. Yeah. So to talk about the beginning of this movie a little bit. So there have been a few attempts to do something else with Fantasia for a while. We talked about in the original episode, Walt Disney's vision, which was re-release it every few years, keep some segments, swap out some others, just have it be a living thing. This didn't happen because very few people saw the first Fantasia originally. Very few people liked it who did see it. And, you know, we've we've talked about this. It didn't gain notoriety until it was released later. And Walt, you know, felt very bad about it because he thought it was the the best movie that he'd ever made. He was very, very proud of it. So so this didn't really happen. But some of the you know animators who worked with him tried to revitalize the project a few times. There were attempts throughout the Bronze Era where it was going to the sequel would have been called Musicana. Or in some versions, that wasn't a sequel. It was just another package movie with a similar idea uh, and would have been more modern music, maybe. Whatever. It did not happen, clearly. Yeah. (laughs) Because it didn't have executive support. The reason it had executive support was because after Little Mermaid was released, and we've talked about how that was 
a complete sea change for Disney animation. And after that, you know, Katzenberg's like, right. And Eisner as well. I like, right. We're releasing an anime movie every single year. We must start looking into direct video stuff. Not long after they start setting up all the satellite studios we have talked about. And one of the things is that they have all these animators and they need to give them something to do. You know, the question is like, well, okay, we've now like got our production set up to be able to make, you know, three movies over the next three years. We don't actually have any movies yet. (laughs) Um, And what do they do like between projects? So they wanted something else that they could work on. And so to keep the animators busy, Roy E. Disney suggested making a new Fantasia. Now, you have to remember Roy E. Disney remembered his uncle pretty well. And I'm sure that, you know, being a member of the Disney family, they talked about like, oh, this was Walt's favorite. You know, it never turned into what he wanted it to. So he had a vested personal interest in reviving the dream. This really is above all else, even though he's not a director, Roy E. Disney's passion project. And I think that's why he's the first name in the closing credits. Even though his title is executive producer, he really is the guy who made this happen. And he tried to make this happen several times. And, uh, Katzenberg, especially the devil himself, Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, refused to uh, do it because, of course, he has no interest in art, proudly so. (laughs) He wanted to make money. And let's be honest, there's no world in which Fantasia is a particularly commercial venture. Even though the original one was much more well-respected by this point, it's not going to have that kind of mainstream appeal. Uh, which is fine. You know, it doesn't need to, but it does in in Jeff's mind. So Eisner, you know, he's trying to reconcile these two. We've talked about some of the disagreements between Katzenberg and Roy. And, you know, he's like, you guys have to work together. You guys have to come halfway. So this is what they did. Roy didn't want to release the original Fantasia and Snow White on VHS. Uh, He didn't really want to release any of the movies on VHS. He thought it would devalue them. We've talked about this a bit as well. Katzenberg, of course, wanted to do this, but he didn't want to do the Fantasia sequel. So Eisner said, why don't we release Fantasia on VHS and we will use any proceeds from that to fund a Fantasia 2. So basically, if that makes money, we'll make Fantasia 2 with that money. Uh, And it was a huge success. Fantasia sold 15 million copies. And in fact, that is what to you. Mom. <laughs> oh, right. In fact, that is when the movie finally turned a profit. And Eisner called Walt's widow to tell her that Fantasia had finally earned a profit. So again, it was like a big moment for the family. <laughs> Katzenberg was still incredibly hostile to it, but Roy and the animators just sort of did it anyway and reported directly to Eisner. Basically, Katzenberg was like, fine, I will have my other projects. And as long as these take priority and we try to release these first, you can use the spare time to create Fantasia. There were several different titles, but Fantasia Continued is what it began under the the title of. And so these segments, they were all made at completely different times. They were all made, you know, by totally different groups of people. It's not as cohesive in production as the original Fantasia, which I think is fine. Like, it's it's fine to do a package film. And that's what this is. This is our first movie for a while, though, that took basically 10 years to get together. Oh, yeah. And then uh, we'll talk more about how some of the individual segments were made when we get to those. Uh, And by me, I mean mom, because I didn't have time. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, I looked some of it up too, so. There you go. There you go. So just not me. <laughs> uh, I'm cu- I'm on color commentary this week, and I'm fine with that. <laughs> and the movie was released. It was, of course, much like the original Fantasia was, you know, a game changer in terms of the technology used to make film and especially to make animated film. Roy had the idea of what if we made this the first ever animated movie for IMAX, which I think a lot of people don't realize now we we were talking about this. How much rarer young people don't realize how rarer uh, IMAX used to be. When this movie premiered in IMAX in 1999, it opened in 75 theaters worldwide. That's 54 in North America and 21 in the entire rest of the world. That is how rare IMAX was. IMAX didn't really become a thing you could expect every theater to have until 2008 2009. Technically, the when it opened in the IMAX theaters, it was actually 2000. It was January 1st, just after midnight. That was when it started showing in IMAX, which is why it's Fantasia 2000. Right. It says that it released in 99 because they did a five city concert tour starting in December of 99 with the actual live orchestra playing while you watched Fantasia. Right. It was a big road show. That's the version that like a lot of the critics got to see and review. It's like these days, there's a lot of, you know, quote unquote, 2021 films that are just now getting released. If you didn't go to Sundance physically. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's like, and you know, it wouldn't be a Fantasia movie if it's release hadn't been wacky and confusing. (laughs) Exactly. But then, of course, uh, after the IMAX release, it did where it did extremely well. It set new records for for IMAX movies at the box office. And then it was released in, you know, all theaters. Uh, essentially, it was released in a in a more standard def version. And it did quite well as well. Well, OK, let me say this. It did quite well, but it had also cost so much to make it didn't really turn a profit. Right. <laughs> That's the thing for a Fantasia movie. And again, I I love Fantasia. Like you can hear the previous episode. This is me talking as a box office pundit and not like a lover of cool things. Yes. But for a Fantasia movie, it did incredibly well. But Eisner saw it as, quote, Roy Disney's folly. He would use that term a few times. And this is where we start driving a wedge between uh, Roy E. Disney and Michael Eisner that will eventually lead to Eisner firing Roy, essentially, and then Roy firing Eisner. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have a mutual firing. That is that is the Disney war of the book Disney War, which I will be reading from again today. Did you notice that they built their own IMAX theater in Los Angeles? Because the only IMAX theater in Los Angeles would not show Fantasia. They wouldn't come to an agreement. Yes, I saw that. So they literally couldn't come to an agreement with the only IMAX theater in L.A., So they built their own IMAX theater, ran it for four months, and demolished it afterwards. And a mall got put up there. (laughs) That is is very much the kind of thing Disney was doing at this time. Like... So crazy. That is the Michael Eisner era of Disney right there. You won't let us show it. We will build a theater and outgross you and tear it down just to mock you. (laughs) Just to show you we can. That's all I had to share uh, before we actually get into the synopsis. I don't know if you had any more, Mom or Grandma. 
I was just going to comment how most of the musical sections are arranged by James Levine, who is the conductor yep. for most of the pieces as well. He's the conductor you see on the screen, and most of the recordings you're hearing were conducted by him. However, two of the songs were actually arranged by someone else. Carnival of the Animals and Pomp and Circumstance were arranged by Peter Shickley. Isaac, I don't know if you've heard of Peter Shickley, but Mom, I know you have. That's PDQ Bach. Oh my gosh! I was going to oh say no. that sounded super familiar. I do know PDQ Bach. Yes! Isn't that hilarious? Oh, that as is soon hilarious. as I saw his name, I'm like, wait, that Peter Shickley? And I looked it up. Yep, it's that Peter Shickley. Wow. <laughs> and he's even very briefly on one of the making of things on my DVDs. Oh, how funny. Well, the thing I thought was interesting when I was listening to somebody tell about the making of was that, well, first of all, Eisner wanted somebody else, I forgot the one person, who just turned it down flat for a conductor. Then he wanted Leonard Bernstein for a conductor, but he passed away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so he could get him. Yeah, Roy had actually been in talks with Bernstein since this was just a dream, you know, before it even got officially approved. That's always kind of who Roy wanted. But as you say, he passed away. Yeah, but Eisner apparently really wanted him too. Mm-hmm. But the other thing, and I don't know, maybe you're going to bring this up, was besides the fact that Eisner wanted Leonard Bernstein to do that, he also thought that they should include one of the songs to be something by the Beatles. Yes, I want, <laughs> I did want to mention this. One of Eisner's early ideas, because of course, again, he's thinking from like, right, how do we make this have a little more popular appeal? He won, and also because he thought it sounded like a classical song and that was close enough. So he wanted to do... <laughs> Let it be by the Beatles. He wanted that to be a song. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's a great song. I, it would be interesting to see animation put to that song. It would not be Fantasia. Like, it's, no. it's he had zero <laughs> respect for what I would be shocked if to this day Michael Eisner has seen the original Fantasia. I would genuinely yeah, be surprised. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know that he would get it. <laughs> I don't I really don't think he would. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they had to make a lot of compromises with him. We'll talk about the greatest one when we get to uh, the segment he was in charge of. But like, obviously, having all of the celebrity presenters, too, I think is a is a nod to more uh, commercial sensibilities. That is one more thing I want to mention, which is why this became Fantasia 2000 and was released in 2000, which was basically that because it's relevant to our overall arc as we're talking about the podcast of the experimental era, which is that all those production studios they'd set up, they're now having to close because the movies have been way too expensive. They've been absurdly expensive. They've been some of the most expensive movies anyone's making during this time. Like a $100 million budget is just about the max. And they are not making their money back anymore. So they're actually having to close several of these studios. They also think that CGI is the future, which they're right about, but it's also kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. (laughs) So, you know, they're like, right, we'll just do, you know, computer animation from now on for making Dinosaur. That's definitely going to take off and, and be what we do for all our movies after that. And also, like, this is the time where Eisner was not getting along with Pixar. So it was very much like we're going to drop 
Pixar and we'll have our own CGI studio that everyone will agree is as good. <laughs> uh, again, it's going to take that's going to take like 20 years. But <laughs> the point being, so they weren't sure they were going to have a movie to release. And they're like, right, what's the closest to done? And it's like, well, Roy's been working on Fantasia for you know, 10 years now. And they were really slow moving because like Roy, again, it's his passion project. He wanted it to be perfect. Reading about how long it took them to pick out the musical compositions that they really thought they could do something with, all of which is great. Mm-hmm. But so they were like, OK, we need you to release this like now. And they diverted more resources to, to getting it finished. And they were like, let's get it out for the millennium. Let's call it Fantasia 2000. You know that then it's this big celebration of the of the new millennium. And then they ended up releasing two other movies in 2000. So I'm not <laughs> really sure what they were worried about. <laughs> it's true. But yeah, that's the story. Let's go ahead and go into the movie segment by segment. Well, of course, first we have to start with an intro and it starts with these kind of square-ish things kind of flying in to make the stage. They call them sails. So I actually watched some making of things from my DVDs and also a commentary. So it's like, ah, now I get to hear the directors actually talking about what they were calling these things. So all these sails come flying in, showing little bits and scenes, and you hear bits from the original Fantasia, including some of the original Deems Taylor narration, which doesn't survive anymore in the (laughs) original Fantasia. So I was like, yay, Deems Taylor. Though this doesn't have him saying my favorite line from the original Fantasia. It cuts out the one bit, which is him saying absolute music. (laughs) It has every other part of that introduction where he's describing the different types of segments you'll see, but he doesn't say absolute music. I was waiting for it. I was so excited to hear those two words. Oh, well. Oh, well. The the sales are very striking, even though when they're coming in, the CGI looks a smidge dodgy. There's a few places here where I, I that you could say that about the CGI, but it is it is a very striking look. And like the posters for this movie that prominently featured, you know, the cartoons on the sales. Yeah, I have a poster. Oh, you do? Oh, wow. Yes. Somewhere. <laughs> I love the posters for this movie. Yeah. Cool. I have to say I, I'm a poster fan. It's a good poster. I heard one of the people say that when they were trying to decide where to have it look like the orchestra was and they realized it could do whatever they wanted, they just put it out in space. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I did have a question for you, Mom, that, that relates to that. I assumed, my understanding was that all of the narrators kind of recorded their stuff separately. They did. And in fact, they even talked about in some of those intro segments Here you see the orchestra that we filmed in this location on and this date. And then months later, we filmed, you know, this one person. And then this other thing that's happening in the same shot happened at a completely different time. (laughs) Right. That's why I assumed they had not always. Sometimes people were together, but a lot of times the people introducing each segment were almost never with the orchestra. Yes, that's that's what I figured. That's why I assumed they did it in space. But it's cool to know that there was also an artistic reason. There was an artistic reason that they wanted to have it be like in space. And you get to see the title screen and, you know, the orchestra is there. And I'm not sure if you see them here or just 
and other times, you know, later where they actually have the orchestra and the animators. Mm -hmm. So you're including everybody, not everybody, but you're getting a representative sample of everybody who had to work on it together. Like we just threw these people all out in space and made them do it. (laughs) (laughs) They're imprisoned in time cube. Uh, and we go right into Beethoven's Fifth. We do. No intro for this. This is the absolute music one. They basically make it be like the first one from the original Fantasia, where it doesn't tell as much of a story. However, they do tell more of a story in this one. A little bit. They wanted to do Beethoven's Fifth for a long time. There were a lot of different uh, pitches. They eventually went with Pihote Hunt's version which took him two years to make. I think he animated this almost on his own. Well, and all the backgrounds were hand painted. Yeah, yeah. And they hand drew the, what do they call them? The character butterflies. But of course, the countless ones were all computer animation. Right. The One of the other main unique things about this segment is that they did it with pastels, which they almost never used with animation. Right. It's really interesting that this sequence is a mix of, you know, pastels, which is this very like tactile, you know, style of of art. And yet it's only possible because of caps and computer generated imagery. So it really it's a great way to start where it's like, here's something that's very old and something that's very new combined. Yes. And they I thought it was funny when. Roy was telling about asking James Levine about doing Fantasia 2000. And he was super excited about doing it. And Roy said, well, wait, what do you think about doing a three minute Beethoven's fifth? And he had to think about it for just a few seconds. And then he said, just so long as it's the right three minutes. (laughs) (laughs) So mom, take us through the plot. Well, there's these little butterflies who look like they're made out of nacho chips. (laughs) (laughs) We were calling them the flying Doritos. Yes. And our two main character butterflies. There's a big one and a little one. (laughs) (laughs) There's a volcano full of bats. And then there's the whole, you know, battle between the good, colorful butterflies and the (laughs) evil black and red bats. Black and red. Hmm. (laughs) And they win with rainbow power. <laughs> yep. Just uh, just as Beethoven intended. <laughs> uh, it's a cool it's a it's a cool way to start. It is. It's not very long. No, <laughs> but they wanted something recognizable right from the start. Right. Everybody knows this. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yes, this is the only uh, one where I didn't have to, like, listen carefully for the name. Although I would have known Rhapsody in Blue also. But yeah, this one. This one's easy. So then uh, Steve Martin introduces the next segment. Yeah, uh, he kind of what Steve Martin actually does is introduce more of the movie. Yeah, uh, he makes a joke about his two week music course. I feel like he's just the right amount of funny because obviously Steve Martin is somebody who can be like, I love the jerk, but, you know, he can go so big. He's doing just enough here. You get a little like flavor of jokes on top, but he's not making the whole uh, movie, you know, about him. Martin's one of my two favorite presenters in this introducers, whatever you want to call it. And then he introduces Itzhak Perlman, who is a violinist, of course. 
And then Itzhak Perlman introduces for us the next segment, which is Pines of Rome by Ottorino Respighi. Mm -hmm. This was the first piece that they really started working on for this movie. I don't remember the order of all the segments when they were working on them or what, but I know this one was first because Roy Disney had always loved this piece of music. And he was like, I think this one will be great. We should include this. And this was a very early piece of CGI work when they were just kind of getting used to the CGI system before even uh, many of the movies. In fact, they used technology they developed for this, for the stampede scene in The Lion King. So that, you know, shows shows when they were working on this stuff. This is, of course, the CGI whales one. What if we had whales that could fly? (laughs) (laughs) I find this one to be a little bit sleepy. I do like it. It's just a little sleepy making. Basically, this one has a couple of hunchback. Hunchback. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That. (laughs) Leave it in. Leave it in. You must leave in the hunchback of Notre Wales. Um, it, it starts with a couple of humpback whales, mm-hmm. humpback whales. And they're flying out there. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there's like a pulsing supernova in the sky. That means the whales can fly out of the ocean. Well, those are the, those are the bells. We did, uh, we did joke that this sequence is a, a prequel to Star Trek four. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, this is why all the whales are gone and they have to go back and get a couple. They all fly away. <laughs> but yeah, they're, uh, they're, there's, we're mostly following a baby whale who flies up with birds and then goes into an ice cave and then gets... We do have a mom status in this one, though. Mom status. Whale. <laughs> <laughs> That's the status. It's a, it's a back whale. I mean... There's not much of a status for it. She's not a very good mother, is she? Baby totally wanders off. Uh, but they found him. It's like me at Disney World. The uh, the whale's brother is going, we lost Isaac. We lost Isaac. <laughs> <laughs> and Grandpa Lee is losing his mind. <laughs> but then the baby gets out of the cave. Yep. I like the ice cave part. I mean, it's pretty. See, the ice cave part is is... What I found a little boring. When they're not in the ice cave and they're showing the Aurora Borealis looks very pretty, too. Yep, I agree. That's yeah. the best bit. See, you're outvoted, Mom. That's what you get for bringing a third person on. <laughs> now the tie's broken. <laughs> oh, no. You're objectively wrong. Take your opinion back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it ends with them above the clouds. I don't know. It's whales. Yep, yep. But the, all the whales then jo- join the family and that's what they were using for that. That's when they were, you know, coding the the big pod of whales that becomes the wildebeests later. Right. <laughs> they were going to have it be a stampede of whales in Lion King. <laughs> they felt it distracted from the severity of the moment. But, you know, they were they were talking about how proud they were of the, the code they had to make to, you know, basically none of the whales crash into each other. They all have, you know, there's about five different whale behaviors they can follow and ways they move. And Right. And the we should mention the eyes are hand drawn. Yes. And boy, are they. 
<laughs> that is probably the thing that looks the worst now. They couldn't at the time computer animate the eyes to look real enough. So they're like, hey, you guys have seen Mr. Ed, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they just drew, they hand drew the eyes on the whales and occasionally it looks not so good anymore. But I don't remember it looking weird when we first saw it. Yeah. No, I don't think your your eyes would have been, you know, as attuned to seeing the CGI like we are now to seeing the differences. That could be. I just know your dad didn't like those eyes at all. <laughs> yeah, he was commenting on them from the beginning. Well, but he because he's colorblind, he does see things differently than the rest of us. He's always saying things like, Oh, there you can see how obvious it is that it's a you know stunt man or whatever. Like that hair's not even the same color or whatever. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's like their shape is all different. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. We have Quincy Jones introducing the next bit. Mom, you're usually in charge of the cast. Tell us about Quincy Jones. Well, I had to look him up because I didn't really know who Quincy Jones was very much. But he is a musician and they basically picked him because he's actually had been friends with George Gershwin and Al Hirschfeld, whose drawing style they imitated for Rhapsody in Blue. Mm -hmm. Quincy Jones worked on music for The Wiz, which I know you love, Isaac. I do. He's The Wiz and he lives in Oz. <laughs> I mean, he did a lot of things. He did several, uh, you know, film soundtracks and lots of other music. I mean, he's a very famous. I know him at least best as a producer. He has produced a lot of, you know, very famous and, and beloved albums. He's probably best known for his collaborations with Michael Jackson, which is, you know, it's, it is what it is. Um, I also know him for giving just incredible interviews. He is one of these guys, especially at this point in his career, right? I mean, he was born in 33. So he's he's lived a rich life and he does not care anymore. He's like, what are you going to do to me? So he's one of these guys where he will give incredibly honest interviews where he's like dishing all of the gossip on everyone in Hollywood. It's hilarious. Every time there's a Quincy Jones interview, it's a must read. <laughs> That's funny. And he introduces probably I, I think it's the most popular segment. Yes, I was reading that as well. That just seemed like everyone was like, this is the best segment. <laughs> yeah, it's not my personal favorite. It is incredible, which is, of course, Rhapsody in Blue. And it was really Eric Goldberg who cameos in the short. It's the Goldberg Hotel and uh, who will actually cameo in a moment. Uh, but it uh, it was really his idea. He was one of the animators who was the most involved in this. He directed both Rhapsody in Blue and Carnival of the Animals. Yeah, this was his idea, which is what if we did Al Hirschfeld's caricatures? He actually reached out to Hirschfeld. Yes. So Hirschfeld kind of collaborated on it. Yeah, he did. And Eric Goldberger was working on this long before it was part of Fantasia 2000. It was just his own little pet project right. yeah. that he worked on with his wife, I guess. Yeah, she was the art director. Okay, and uh, when Roy Disney saw what he had done, he said, we have to have this for Fantasia 2000. Absolutely. So, yeah. And, and by the way, I think it is telling that story because like we talked about 
how the reason Don Bluth basically led a revolt of all the good Disney animators in the Bronze Era was because they'd been working on this garage project that got turned down. I think it kind of shows you that Disney's in somewhat better hands now that, you know, Roy sees uh, Goldberg's garage project is like, oh, we have to have it. Here's a major release. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and again, rightly so, because this is an incredible sequence. I also saw uh, that this scene was so complex that rendering it with caps delayed work on Tarzan, to which I say, great, but not long enough. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the like the, the final scene where all the lights are blinking and it's night. That's the one. That scene took so long to render. It took like months that it delayed Tarzan. <laughs> <laughs> that really is what was the biggest problem with CGI and all the computer stuff at this time was just the rendering times. Yeah. Now, of course, you have massive server farms in the desert, so you don't have to worry about that as much. All right, so this one actually, of course, has more of a story even than the previous one. It's really intricate. It is. Got a lot of characters in this one, and they actually all have names. So this uh, story takes place in 1930s era New York City. As we said, drawn in the style of Al Hirschfeld. I love how it starts with just a single line drawing the skyline of New York. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of zoom into the city where we meet first Duke, who is a drummer by love, if not yet by profession. (laughs) He's named after Duke Ellington, apparently. Mm -hmm. This sequence reminds me of All the Cats Join In from Make My Music, but it's like a better, longer, big budget version. Not only is it jazz, but it's kind of a similar art style. The funny thing, of course, being that they take place in about the same time, but that one was present day. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And then we meet Jobless Joe, <laughs> who's sitting in the coffee shop. Jobs are scarce. Yeah, because it's it's the depression. Right. It certainly is. I got to tell you, jumping ahead, when Jobless Joe is on the roof of that building looking down, I was like, how dark is this about to get? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, that's me and my, my dark mind, I guess. But I was like, what yeah. is about to happen? Not that dark. Not that dark. Not that dark. <laughs> Anyway, does it happen at all? Duke, his job is as a riveter Mm -hmm. on a big building. One of the funniest jobs to animate. Like, I feel just, you know, since the Looney Tunes days. Yeah. The existence of riveters has has provided much fun for animators. It's true. And then we, let's see, we meet. It's the hotel. There's the doorman who gets, speaking of stampede. (laughs) (laughs) So first we see coming out, I mean, There's tons and tons of people, but the specific characters we see coming out are a little girl, Rachel, with her ball, with her parents, and she is sent off with Nasty Nanny. (laughs) Don't forget your mom status. (laughs) Yep, yep. Thank you, because we did bad last time. Mom status. Working mother. So they're apparently doing pretty well, because not only do both parents have a job, but they have enough money to hire a nanny and to uh, let have Rachel going to all of these different uh, classes. She goes to so many classes, ballet, music or singing, uh, swimming, painting, gymnastics, tennis, eventually piano. Which is where we get the cameo from George Gershwin's caricature. Yep. Oh, that's right. Because he's up on another floor. Because he's yeah. playing the piano better. 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I actually, the in the director's commentary for this segment, they actually had Al Hirschfeld with them. Oh, wow. For the commentary. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so he asked, so how hard was it to animate my drawing of Gershwin? And they were like, really hard, man. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just a silhouette in the original drawing, the original picture he made. And so they had to, you know, make it move. <laughs> right. So they were describing, you know, how hard that was. But it was that was fascinating. And he was just thrilled that they did it. He was like, if I'd been younger, I would have animated it myself. But he he was like, I can't do it. Yeah, he didn't think he could do it. Yeah, he would have been. He lived to be 100 and he died in 2003. So he was 97. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know that. I think he's one of those guys who lived right up until he died, you know? Yeah, yeah. Right. Also, I recommend if our listeners don't know that much about Al Hirschfeld, look him up, do an image search so you can see the beard. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible yes. beard. Yes. Oh, I did forget to mention also coming out of the Goldberg Hotel, we have a couple of our other characters. Right. Flying John and Killjoy Margaret with the dog Fufu. Ah! <laughs> I love those names. Killjoy Margaret. I love that too. And Flying John looks, you'll recognize him because he looks just like Mr. Snoops from The Rescuers. He does. Oh, yeah, you know, he does. Which, as we said, was based on another person. So I'm sure it's I'm sure it's basically a Hirschfeld caricature of him. Well, they they just intentionally based him on John Colhane. And so then John Colhane loved that so much. He used to sign his sign that flying John on stuff because he got to be that also. Um, But he and he really does look like it. So John Colhane did the um, like art books for both Fantasia and Fantasia 2000. Now, before, though, we see Flying John and Killjoy Margaret again, (laughs) uh, we do have my favorite character, which is the, well, I guess it's about the same time, which is the organ grinder's monkey. (laughs) Oh, right. Yeah. 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 Flying John is, uh, John is, uh, you know, dancing with the monkey. The monkey steals a bunch of peanuts. That feels very, like... Taking, you know, stuff from a salesman, that's like duck soup with the Marx Brothers. It's like tit for tat with Laurel and Hardy. That's just Mm. straight vendors can't catch a break in 30s comedies. (laughs) I described them because, of course, I didn't know their names when we watched it either as the man who likes fun with the wife who likes her dog. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Though, you know, it's not ever clear if they're married, but it does seem like they are. Well, I mean, she... She made him pay the bill. She did. Right. They're shared finances. That's usually. Yeah. This is where everyone sadly walks to the window. Yeah. About to end it all. (laughs) They're all looking down (laughs) at the at the ice skating area and they and we get to see their dreams, what they really want. The little girl just wants her parents to spend time with her. Jobless Joe, of course, wants a job. (laughs) Duke wants to be a drummer. And, you know, Flying John wants to fly. That's why they call him Flying John. He just wants to have fun. And uh, it all basically happens at once. I already can't remember any of these days. Joe gets a night shift job. Well, first, Duke is like, I quit. And he's like, I'm going to go to this talent concert, you know, talent night so that I can show my drumming talent and, you know, get a job that way. He's kind of the instigator that gets everybody else their dreams. Yeah. Yeah, he starts it. He starts it. And so when he drops his stuff, 
then uh, Jobless Joe ends up picking it up and gets a job immediately. So he has the night shift job and he's like, yay, I can make money. Rachel drops her ball and the ball then bounces up and hits both of her parents' office windows. And she's running out in the street to get her ball and her parents save her. And then at the talent night where Duke gets his chance, John is there because Killjoy Margaret got kind of hooked by the crane. Oh, yeah, yeah. When they're walking past. Yep, yep. When they're walking past, he kind of hooks her. And uh, then Flying John is alone to do whatever he wants. So he goes to the nightclub. <laughs> and uh, everyone's happy. And we end on that awesome shot with all the the like neon lights, as you described. Yep. And it was worth the time it took to <laughs> render. <laughs> yeah. And I love that piece of music anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Incredible. I'm going to spoil it, I guess, and say that the Firebird is my favorite uh, segment. We always try to pick our favorites. This is a close second. I like this one because it feels, even though obviously it's only possible with caps and everything, it feels like a very classical shortened style. It, it took me back to, again, make my music, watching all those wartime era package movies. It almost feels like just, in, you know, kind of stylistically and in terms of, the story such as it is and the characters and the humor. It could be a classic short. I like the Firebird because it feels like something totally new and cool and of this era. So I, I love them both. So then we get a the Bette Midler intro. She actually talks about some of the ideas that were tossed around for Fantasia over the years, but never came to fruition. I got to say, I don't like this introduction segment. I don't like making fun of the old ideas. I mean, like, can you believe that? Because most of the stuff she's bringing up, I'm like, that sounds pretty cool. Like, yes, <laughs> I would actually have liked to see that. Like, why right. are we being like, can you imagine this? And I'm like, yeah, it, it seems interesting. <laughs> yeah, somebody actually made that same comment. And what I was reading, they were saying that they did not like her intro and that they thought she was being snarky mm -hmm. and that they didn't think she should be criticizing those other ideas. <laughs> well, in fairness, I don't think it's Bette Midler's fault. I'm sure she's <laughs> reading a script that's written for her. Right. But it's true. It does come across as, as very almost like, can you believe like the crazy old Fantasia? And it's like <laughs> the only people who are going to see this are people who love the original Fantasia. And this is like a celebration of it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird thing to include. I don't care for it. Again, I don't think it's her fault. But uh, eventually she does introduce the Steadfast Tin Soldier, which is set to Dmitry Shostakovich. Thank you. Shostakovich's Piano Concerto Number no. 2. And they this was the one that's interesting because they had the idea for the story. Like they'd actually been thinking of doing a Steadfast Tin Soldier short for a long time, possibly even for the original Fantasia. There were some drawings. Yeah, there was some old concept art from way back when that they looked at and used some of, or, you know, as inspiration. But they couldn't find a, a musical piece for it for a long time. But, yeah, but then but Roy really wanted this piece. Yeah. This musical piece done, but didn't know what, you know, story they should have with it. And... I can't remember which person it was, finally put them together and it was like, well, this is perfect. There you go. 
So the art director for this one, Michael Humphreys, he's the one who had the idea. As you say, Roy had picked out this song. They had the steadfast tin soldier drawings already. He's the one who had the idea of putting the two together. And he wanted to give it a very classical feel. What he said specifically was he wanted it to feel timeless. Yeah. Uh, then the director, Hendel Butoy again, was like, right, what if instead of making it timeless, we made sure this would be the most dated one forever? Oh, no. <laughs> I, I don't know. That might be a bit harsh. But this is, of course, the first ever Disney thing to include CGI main characters. It was the first thing made in-house at Disney Animation Studios, uh, not at Pixar. And they actually started work on this before Toy Story. So you could say they were working on it sooner The backgrounds are all hand-drawn, but the characters are CGI. And by the time they were working on this one, they had been able to get the eyes better because they did this after the one with the whales. Oh, right. So they didn't have to hand-draw the eyes. (laughs) I did read that they were going for porcelain. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, right. I mean, that is, again, it's the same idea they have with Toy Story, which is like, well, CGI right now can only make everything look very shiny and fake. So let's make characters that are shiny and fake. Yeah. And that's a good idea. Uh, When this one started, Grandma, you said, oh, I don't like this one as much. The Jack of the Box has always upset me. And I was like, what do you mean? ah!" (laughs) (laughs) Everyone makes this joke now, but the Jack of the Box is horrific. Oh, yes. (laughs) So creepy. The funniest thing is they were trying for some you know, live action reference for the Jack in the Box. And they couldn't find any Jack in the Box toys because they don't make them anymore. And nobody had one. Oh, my goodness. And so they never could get an actual Jack in the Box toy to use for live action reference for the Jack in the Box. Oh, no. So maybe that's partly why it's extra creepy. (laughs) I think they did this because they were like, right, in the original Fantasia, Chernobog gave people nightmares. We need our own (laughs) satanic figure. I guess. I will say, this is my theory only. I've seen no proof of this, and I did look. I think that the evil Jack in the Box from Hell looks a bit like Jeffrey Katzenberg. And these animators were not above doing mean caricatures, especially of Katzenberg. We've talked about a few in the past. Yeah. That is my personal suspicion, just because they were doing mean caricatures and they do have a bit of a similar look. I have no proof for this. Totally unsubstantiated. That's my feeling. (laughs) Spreading rumors. (laughs) Mom, however, does stand by all those statements. (laughs) She 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 loves doing libels. So just so everyone knows, just so we have that in writing. (laughs) Mom's two favorite things in order are libel and Disney. (laughs) Yeah, now you're making stuff up. Apparently there was originally plans for like a whole bunch of Hans Christian Andersen stories collected into a package movie. And that's where the original artwork that they had, the original concept art for Steadfast Tin Soldier came from, because that's, of course, one of Hans Christian Andersen's stories. And they did stick fairly close to the original story, except for the ending. So basically, you've got a set of tin soldiers. The last one only has one leg because there wasn't enough tin to pour out into the mold, as they say in the story. (laughs) That kid broke that. (laughs) And he sees the ballet dancer and thinks she's the same as him because she's standing on one leg. And so he's like, oh, she will like me because we're the same. 
And then he goes to give her a flower and she puts her other leg down. And he's like, oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> the creepy Jack in the box is interested in the ballet dancer, too. But um, I am a marionette. He slimes. <laughs> So they fight for the girl and the toy soldier gets knocked out of the window by a wooden boat, which he then lands in and has a whole adventure floating down the sewer. The rain in this, and this is so strange to me, but the rain in this short was taken from Bambi. They took animation cells from Bambi, scanned it into caps, and then digitally altered it to fit the segment. Oh my goodness. It's Bambi coming back again. I mean, Bambi is in all of them. They do use reuse a lot of animation from Bambi, but it's like you couldn't draw rain. I suspect <laughs> that must have been something they were finishing later, right? When they're yeah. like, this must be done in 99. We're running out of time. And like, well, I'm Quick. not drawing rain. <laughs> <laughs> the rats in the sewer were the creepiest part of that part of the movie, of the segment, I mean. Yeah, mm-hmm. they look like, you know, Lady and the Tramp rats where they they definitely do very evil. But there's so many of them. Yeah. Originally, they were going to have the rats be comedic, but they felt that didn't fit the that part of the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Much more menacing. I agree. I actually watched the uh, alternate scene and it's much better as is, even if the rats are creepy. Yeah, it fits the music. And then, of course, eventually the soldier goes through a grate, falls out of the boat, and gets eaten by a fish. He has to get eaten by a fish because this is his way to get back home. Right. The fish is caught in a net and then sold in a from a fish seller, purchased by the home where the toy soldier is from, you know, in an amazing coincidence. Oh, yeah, that, that strains is- credulity a bit. I was with you with the talking, living, moving toys. <laughs> <laughs> then the uh, when the fish is cut open, the toy soldier falls out. And the little boy is like, yay, my soldier, that's mostly fish. Huzzah. <laughs> <laughs> and yay, the fish that is poisoned. Yeah, by the lead. <laughs> well, no, it's a tin soldier. Oh, tin. Fast lead tin paint. Soldier. Lead paint, mom. Think it's, about it. It is probably lead paint. <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, the Jack of the Box is sent back to the fires of hell from whence it came. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they have another fight, but the Jack in the Box ends up in the fire. So originally they were going to go with the the actual ending from the story, which being Hans Christian Andersen, you know it has to end tragically, where both the soldier and the ballerina fall into the fire. Oh, that's right. And the Jack in the Box survives. And they are burnt up and melted in and in the morning, there's the shape of a heart. There's like a heart lump. Yes. Of the tin that, you know, it turns into a heart. That's the that's Hans Christian Anderson for you (laughs) guys. (laughs) (laughs) But the music at the end is so triumphant. They were like, it just doesn't work. (laughs) It it doesn't. That would be that would be quite strange. So they had to make it so that the soldier wins and the. Jack in the box dies and they and the soldier actually pushes the Jack in the box. It is with intent. That means so far in terms of Disney murderers who are our (laughs) heroes, we have Bernard in Rescuers Down Under and we have Tin Soldier from Tin Soldier. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, you got to watch out for the small ones. (laughs) Maybe they don't feel like it's so... uh... It doesn't feel so bad when it's somebody little killing somebody much larger than them. I don't know. I mean, this Jack in the Box needs to go. Oh, yeah. He's pretty awful. <laughs> Definitely. He's pretty awful. Definitely. <laughs> that makes the soldier my hero. Yes. 
This is my other favorite introducer, James Earl Jones, Mufasa yes, himself. Yes, yes. I love His this. Voice. This intro is the, he, the, but this intro is also one of the best because they have him talking about, you know, we're going to have the carnival of the animals and the, you know, age old question of man, you know, nature and blah, blah. And, and then Eric Goldberg hands him a piece of paper and he says, Oh, wait, the age old question of what would happen if you give a yo-yo to a flock of flamingos? <laughs> <laughs> it's just so great to hear him saying that. And then we have Carnival of the Animals. I love this segment. My only complaint about it is it's too short. It's super short. Yes. You could do a lot more. But they were intentionally choosing a very small piece of music and they were wanting to basically it's a it's like a feature project for Eric Goldberg. Like he pretty much did the whole thing himself. Yes. Yes. And Goldberg, I, we should say, is still doing stuff to this day on mm -hmm. Disney Plus. There's these how to stay at home shorts. That's goofy. It's the goofy how to shorts, but it's in the pandemic. He's putting on a mask, all this stuff. Those are all Eric Goldberg animated those himself. Again, it's just like he did this project for fun and they're like, well, we'll put that on Disney Plus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I only discovered those recently because they're buried, but they're they're worth a watch. They're fun. They are. Um, but yeah, this the idea for this was actually proposed by Joe Grant, who is still around. Uh, who had worked on the original Fantasia. I mean, he worked all the way from Pinocchio. Yep. And yeah, it was his idea to... Uh, he loved the ostriches in Dance of the Hours. Who doesn't? <laughs> yep. yep. And he was like, "Let you should do more ostrich jokes. What if one of the ostriches played with a yo-yo? They were like, good idea, good idea. Um, what if we do flamingos because they're brighter, brighter colors? <laughs> yeah. Right. And his wife actually described it as the... Uh, the color palette is the, a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, to to you and I, this segment is short. To Eric Goldberg, this was 6,000 watercolor paintings. Yeah, and wow. that's another, that's what was special about this one is that most of it was watercolor, um, which is often, not often done for animation either. So, you know, it's another interesting, different new technique. And so we've got the flamingo with a yo-yo. And this is a stirring parable about the dangers of conformity. I was just going to say he's the nonconformist. That's right. He's an iconoclast flamingo. You got the six flamingos who are just always dancing along in time and doing things all together. And uh, you've got the one with his yo-yo who just wants to be, you know, do whatever he wants. And they're like, no, you got to, you know, be in time with us. And then he finds ways to play with his yo-yo with them. And they don't like that. Uh, apparently they are the, the the snooty flamingos because you know everybody's got it. Eric Goldberg's all about the silly names. <laughs> of course, at the end he has all the yo-yos. So right. you know it's really short. It's less than two minutes long. It's really short. Super funny. It does feel like a good reference to Dance of the Hours, though I agree it's too short. Mm -hmm. Maybe yeah. This is to be honest. That's kind of my complaint. My only major complaint about Fantasia 2000 is I wish it was longer. It's super short. It's a normal length movie, basically. Well, it's only 75 minutes. That's true. So it is kind of short. It's shorter than any other Renaissance. I mean, it's not a Renaissance film. Some people say it is, but it's very short. That's my biggest complaint is I wish there was more. Even if they had thrown in a couple more of the original Fantasia segments, I'd have been OK. 
And then we have Penn and Teller, who are magicians, doing the intro for The Sorcerer's Apprentice. I got to tell you, maybe this is just me, but I associate... I'm, I'm, I'm no doubt Penn and Teller is still doing stuff. In fact, I've just confirmed on Wikipedia that they are. But I associate them with like a very specific time in the 2000s. <laughs> a very specific type of kind of energy that they had and, you know... Their, their whole militant atheism shtick and, and Penn just yelling like he's just he's just yelling throughout this whole thing, which is, you know, his style of patter. I find it a bit annoying. I'll be honest. He's just going like stage magic. It's all tricks. It's all a lie. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my opinion on Penn and Teller. Somebody was surprised that they actually made it look like Teller at his hand off. They thought that was gross. It's true. <laughs> so apparently they did do that whole intro segment. It's one take. I mean, they had to do right. several takes mm-hmm. to get it right. But they, it's, there's no cuts in it intentionally because that's their only way of being like, you know, we're doing the magic without any camera tricks. I always forget that that there's going to be the part at the end where Teller cuts Penn's ponytail off and it turns into a little bunny. I do like that part. That part is funny. And then, of course, we have the Sorcerer's Apprentice again. Now, we've already covered this. See our previous uh, Fantasia episode. So, Becky, since you were not on that episode, what are your thoughts on the Sorcerer's Apprentice? Well, I mentioned the other night when we were watching that, of course, when we saw it on IMAX, that was the one piece that did not translate well to the IMAX as far as the animation. Mm Mm-hmm. But um, as far as the just the story or the whole thing of, of Sorcerer's Apprentice, I had a record, which I don't know if you remember that, because I'm sure I still had it when you were little, that one side of the record was just all the story of the Sorcerer's Apprentice with the music in the background and somebody describing the whole thing. Ah. And I'm pretty sure it had been put out by Disney and it was supposed to be Mickey as the apprentice, but he's just telling everything that happens because, of course, back then you didn't get videos and you never saw something unless you saw it in the theater. And so I just had heard that innumerable times, not counting actually the times that I did see it. (laughs) But I always liked the story. And one of the people that I was listening to said that, which I was like, oh, I I forget that. You know, it's like, oh, that's the one. Everybody knows that one. And we've seen that one so many times. And they show it on the TV all the time, even when it wasn't out on video and uh, whatever. But they were saying that the first time little kids see that one, you know, they're so taken with it because it is new for them. And when they see the all the broomstick pieces turning into brooms and they're like, oh, you know. And yeah, I was just like. Oh, yeah, it is always fresh for somebody. I think Roy was talking about that on the commentary that I was watching where he said that when a little, ever, you see the little kids watching it for the first time and the brooms start coming back to life after he's chopped it up, they're like, uh-oh, he's in trouble. Like, even all little kids can relate to Mickey getting in trouble. Yes. And he just loves seeing that on their face every time. I will say that the best part about the commentary I was watching was during this segment, Roy Disney talks to Mickey about 
what it was like to make the Sorcerer's Apprentice. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And Mickey, you know, Mickey's voice is talking about, you know, how many different takes things took. And, you know, sometimes when, you know, the broom flings him into the cistern, he missed and hurt himself. (laughs) He had to have so many different robes because they kept getting wet. And Mickey uses a stunt mouse. We all know it. He's trying to (laughs) inflate his... Not according to the commentary. Yeah, you know, he's he's trying to inflate his resume. He doesn't want to give any credit to the professionals. Yeah. And he's also talking about, you know, he remembers when Roy was just a little kid. <laughs> I thought it was great when I found out as an adult that the sorcerer was named Yensid, Disney backwards, and that he was kind of a caricature uh-huh. of Walt as well. Yep. Yep. They even mentioned that in that commentary about the eyebrow. <laughs> I'm going to say something maybe a little controversial about this segment, which is like, it's great. Again, you could hear a previous podcast. Love the Sorcerer's Apprentice that everyone does. I kind of wish it wasn't in this movie because it feels even not watching it on IMAX. It looks so different. It feels so different. Yeah. Like it's paced differently to the modern shorts. It makes it impossible not to compare them. And I'm not even saying that one style is necessarily better it just it feels kind of out of place, to mm-hmm. be honest. It's a little weird. Kind of wish it had been all new. But then again, if Roy had had his way, this would be half uh, existing stuff. So I don't know. Oh, yeah. I wonder if it would have made it seem less out of place if they had been able to include something else from the original. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I kind of just wish they'd let Roy take the 25 years he probably would have originally taken to make 90 minutes worth of like (laughs) shorts with obsessive animators. Yeah, but you wouldn't want them to still be working on it or anything. You'd want it to be out. (laughs) (laughs) Fantasia 2010. All I'm saying. (laughs) Of course, it ends The Sorcerer's Apprentice with Mickey going up and shaking hands with Leopold Stokowski, just like he did in the original. And then they transitioned to Mickey running from his silhouette to go and shake hands with James Levine, who is the conductor for, you know, everything Fantasia 2000. And so instead of just being a silhouette, it's 3D Mickey. That is especially I don't think they should have kept the Stokowski because the, the juxtaposition between like, oh, it's very classy. It's in silhouette. It's a short moment. And like, here I am. I'm talking to you. James Levine, and here, you know, into my slick, shiny IMAX ready. You know, it's a little it, it's a little jarring. The difference there. They did redub him talking to Stokowski to make it Wayne Allwright, who, of course, was the voice of Mickey at the time. So it's not uh, I believe it is Walt in the original Fantasia, right? Probably. I think so. As I recall, that's like his last or one of his last times he did the voice. We should note James Levine has been accused of some very inappropriate behaviors. And so it's kind of unfortunate that he's in this and that he was such a big part of it, knowing that now just felt the need to say that. But yes, he introduces the next segment, which, oh boy, am I ready to talk about this one? Because this is pop and circumstance. (laughs) So by Edward Elgar. So I'm going to just read from uh, Disney War by James B. Stewart, because I think the way that he relates this story is so funny. So. Uh, And I'm guessing this didn't make it onto the commentary. (laughs) (laughs) Although Roy had spurned Eisner's Beatles idea as inappropriate for a film featuring classical music. Appropriate, yes. 
I, absolutely correct. Eisner kept close tabs on the film's progress, and after a trip to his son Eric's high school graduation, insisted that Edward Elgar's pomp and circumstance be one of the compositions featured in a segment. Everyone can relate to pomp and circumstance, he said at a meeting with Roy and the animators, noting that he'd just heard it at his <laughs> son's graduation. <laughs> So Eisner, again, talking about, he surely hasn't seen the original Fantasia. He's not a music guy. He's not even an art guy. He wants to contribute, though, because he needs everything to have Michael Eisner's stamp on it. The, the only piece of classical music he knows and likes is Pomp and Circumstance, because he heard it at a high school graduation, like <laughs> everyone. <laughs> Roy said nothing, but everyone could tell from the strained look on his face that he didn't like the idea. Eisner proceeded to outline a plot for the segment. Here we go. All the classic Disney heroes and heroines, Cinderella and Prince Charming, Ariel and Eric, march in a wedding procession carrying their future babies, which they would present in a ceremony. <laughs> Mom looks like she's just been hit by a bus. <laughs> oh, man. There was dead silence in the room. Okay, Roy finally said with notably little enthusiasm. <laughs> as soon as Eisner left, the animators were in an uproar. Pomp and circumstance might have been classic graduation music, but the animators and many critics deemed it mediocre even by Elgar's standards. That's correct. <laughs> Roy hated the idea. The mass wedding procession seemed like something out of a religious cult. <laughs> and showing the hallowed Disney characters as married with babies implied that they had. I'm going to skip this part. The very thought was unsettling. <laughs> St if you know, you know. Still, Roy reluctantly concluded that they would have to try to implement Eisner's idea. Several animators were assigned the task and came up with a mythological Greco-Roman setting for the ceremony with classical architecture and gardens. Various characters paraded by carrying babies or pushing them in perambulators and strollers. When they unveiled the segment to Roy and the other animators, there was stunned silence. <laughs> this is an appalling abuse of the characters, one animator finally said. It's terrible. The animators flatly refused to continue work on the segment. <laughs> Roy and Schumacher, who we talked about last week, finally conveyed the news to Eisner, who reluctantly gave up the idea of babies. I don't care what you do with it, but you have to use pomp and circumstance, he finally <laughs> said. Roy concluded it was the price he'd have to pay to get the film made. <laughs> the worst idea ever. <sighs> so bad. I gotta say, I don't care. Maybe it's just because I knew that story because I read Disney War in advance and you better believe I had that double bookmark to be like, oh, I can't <laughs> wait to talk about that. <laughs> but this segment's a bit weak. Uh, it doesn't feel like anyone's heart is in it. And yeah, Pomp and Circumstance is an annoying song. <laughs> Everybody's been overexposed to it. That's the problem. Right. That's, a, you know, we, I was in band, of course, so I have had to play this song a hundred. Not this song, even just the beginning part. Yeah, it's it's just one of the part. It's got four marches in Pomp and Circumstance, and I don't remember which one. I think it's number two or number three that is always played for graduations. So, you know, I, I kind of wish they'd been like, yeah, we totally use pomp and circumstance, but not the one that everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again, he like 
just I start going to his son's graduation, hearing that inane piece of music played over and over again until everyone's everyone else in the audience is sick of it. Yeah, because that's how you get at a graduation. And he's like, oh, this is brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, they they another thing Eisner liked is, uh, you know, using the the classic Disney characters again, trying to make it a little more marketable. So, yeah, here's Donald and we're doing uh, Noah's Ark. Yep. Uh, There were actually a couple of ideas that they had had that kind of ended up being melded together. So they were looking at potentially doing a Donald Duck story um, with the music from Ride of the Valkyries that was Icarus Duck, where Donald is Icarus. <laughs> that sounds so much more fun, I have to say. Trying to impress Daisy. So, you know, Daisy's like the... Daedalus? Grecian, no, Grecian princess. Oh, I see. And all these storks and other big birds, cranes, are flying around and, like, showing off for her. And Donald is like... Oh, I want to show off for her, but he, you know, flaps his arms and doesn't be able to fly. So he builds himself wings, you know, like Icarus with using wax and feathers. And so he can fly and then he's showing off and, you know, being rude to the other flyers. This was a special feature on my disc, by the way. And um, Daisy's getting like cranky about it because he's being a jerk as Donald would do. And then of course, Donald flies too close to the sun and all of his feathers smelt off and he f- is falling. I, I don't remember how he's caught at the end, but of course he doesn't die. And, you know, then he of course is like basically acts apologetic and Daisy's like, you know, I still love you anyway, whatever. It's all good with Ride of the Valkyries. <laughs> that sounds so much better. Yeah, that's a cool, cool piece. Ride of the Valkyries is a perfect song for Donald. And Icarus is better because obviously what's fun about Donald is seeing him <laughs> have hubris. He's he, he fits very well with Greek mythology <laughs> because his hubris is always his downfall. And you can see him getting mad and steamed, literally steamed by the sun. That's, you know, one of the things with this, it has Donald and all, but he can't really get mad a because he's being noah and b because it's a very sedate well noah's assistant but yeah it's a very sedate piece of music you know there's not really any anger in it right but since they had to use pop and circumstance i thought that they did a good job with what they had to work with i agree certainly could have been worse as we now know yeah so apparently they also had an idea originally potentially to do noah's dove so that well, the character that's being played by Donald in the final was actually like the dove that Noah is eventually, you know, sends out to try to bring back the plant, you know, the, the branch, olive branch, whatever. Um, so it's the dove having to do all the stuff that Donald's doing later. And they kind of, of course, combined these. It's like, well, we want to keep Donald and Daisy. Let's have them be Noah's assistants instead of this random brand new dove character, which... To be honest, if they're going to do pomp and circumstance and they're going to do it the way they're doing it, I like it better with Donald than random brand new Dove character. (laughs) Yeah, this is not the animator's fault. That's for sure. Agreed. However, I would love to see the horrible baby parade footage they produced. (laughs) I'm just because I'm curious, not in the movie. It would be terrible. But I am yeah, curious they to see. They did not it. have that as no, an alternate sir. concept because, you know, they have 
um, on on my bonus features disc, it has, you know, each segment with background information and alternate concepts. And so it what I was describing with the Rite of the Valkyries one, it was the whole storyboard set to music. Right. So, you know, basically I watched the whole thing, just not fully animated. They they don't have the baby thing. <laughs> I'm imagining Roy walking out of that room saying to the projectionist, burn this. Yeah. Use it. Never yeah. find it. Yeah. Basically, in, in this one, though, if we're going to describe the, the story of it, uh, Donald is Noah's assistant. He's like, it's your job to get the animals on board the Ark. And so they're loading him on. And one of the funniest bits, I think, is when Donald is sees the two ducks getting on and just makes that face like, (laughs) what? (laughs) But Daisy and I are two ducks. Yes. (laughs) What are I? What am I? The other thing I liked in the beginning segment when all the animals are getting on is it shows like mythological creatures who are sitting back laughing and not getting on the ark. Yes, the unicorn and the dragon. I also really like how so many of the animals that are in this opening part look like animals from previous Disney movies. Yes. So they they did keep that idea sort of, you know, like, hey, look, we use these characters from the other movies, you know, so. So you'll see, um, you know, some of the elephants look like they're from Jungle Book. Some of the there's the little frilled lizards that look like from Rescuers Down Under and a whole bunch of basically almost all the animals. You can be like, that one looks like it's from uh, insert earlier movie here. You know, (laughs) however, Donald doesn't see Daisy get on the boat and Daisy doesn't see Donald get on the boat. So they both think the other got lost in the flood and they're both sad about that a uh, little bit, but, you know, they still have work to do, taking care of all the animals. The directors were saying that if they couldn't think of anything to do, they would squash Donald. <laughs> <laughs> Can't figure out what we need to do here. Donald gets squashed by the animals. <laughs> it's it's a fun little segment. It's not the best, but it's a fun one. I just don't like that I'm going to have it stuck in my head. For <laughs> for a week now. Yeah. Although it did finally dislodge uh, strangers like me. So I guess there's that. <laughs> Never mind. I've just got stuck in my head again by saying the name. Carry <laughs> on. <laughs> uh, so then, of course, Donald and Daisy find each other at the end and it's all happy. Yes. And that's when all the vocal part takes place. Yes. No words, but just their voices. So then our last uh, intro segment is Angela Lansbury comes on to introduce the Firebird. Good final introduction. Angela Lansbury obviously has Disney history. Yep. Because she's Mrs. Potts, if anyone doesn't know. And she she lends gravitas to this ending, which is good. It's good to have a gravitas ending. So Igor Stravinsky's Firebird Suite is the is the music. And one of the things I thought was really cool about this is Disney had licensed this song back when they did the original Fantasia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they did mm-hmm. um, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Right. So they had actually licensed both pieces of music. And then when they were working on Fantasia 2000, they were like, oh, hey, we've actually already got the rights to this. We need to use it. Yeah, they nobody realized that they had the rights to it until 
they dug it up for. Yeah. And Roy had wanted to do something in a similar vein to Night on Bald Mountain and Ave Maria by having the story that they used. And he had also been up in the Northwest and seen Mount St. Helens shortly after it had blown its top. This is the sequence that was directed by the Breezy Brothers, who we talked about at length in Hunchback. Yep. What they brought to Hunchback that's so good is the long, quote-unquote, single-take sequences that have a ton of movement Mm -hmm. where the characters and the backgrounds are moving independently with the cap system, and they bring that to this, and it looks incredible. Everything about this is incredible. I'm not that familiar with this piece of music outside of this movie, but it's wonderful. Yep. This is my favorite segment, too. It's probably my favorite. It's a great ending. It's so good. Basically, a deer meets a cool water lady. (laughs) (laughs) An elk. Apparently, it's an elk. Elk. Yeah. I think of this as, and I was, uh, when I was looking up, like, the contemporary reviews of it, I was not the only person to make this comparison, probably because I think both movies came out the same year, close to each other. I thought of this like the uh, Spirit of the Forest from Hayao Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke. Ah, I don't know if that's actually what's supposed to be, but that's what I thought of because it's also like a mysterious elk. Yes, the elk is kind of like that. I don't think they had seen Miyazaki's thing, but they did intend the elk to be like that. He's not just an elk. He is like a forest. Right. I think they're pulling from the same mythologies. Yes. I don't think they're. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But yeah, he's he's the he's the guy what knows stuff um, because <laughs> they say, you know, later when the, the sprite is all ash and he's like, you know, it's OK. Come with me. It'll come back, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So he he melts some ice and wakes up the, the spring sprite. They call her a sprite. And uh, she has I prefer to think I prefer to think of her in this watery form as a mist. A Sierra Mist, you might say. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that one coming a mile away. (laughs) So she has several different forms where she's like a water sprite or a grass sprite or... 40 great tasting flavors. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Cranberry Sprite, no wait. (laughs) I like Sprite Cranberry. I know, I like it too, but she isn't actually a cranberry in this. No. (laughs) So, you know, she's she's making grass. She's having a good time. Spring is happening because we start off as winter and then all of a sudden it's spring. I, it's so beautiful, this one. Yes. I just love looking at it. When she changes from the watery form to the grass form seamlessly, it's incredible. Yeah. It's yeah. an incredible piece of animation. And she's trying to make grass grow up the mountain, but the grass won't grow on the mountain. So she's investigating and goes inside the volcano and... There's and she accidentally wakes up the firebird. Oh, no. (laughs) And when its eyes open up, mom, you said you jump every single time. (laughs) Yeah, that's well, dad was like, she always jumps out this part. (laughs) (laughs) And I when I watched the commentary, I told you they would love that you jump every time because that was their exact goal in that moment (laughs) is to make the audience jump. And they were like, and every time we watch it with an audience, they jump and that's perfect. That's what we wanted. (laughs) (laughs) 
And of course, the uh, firebird, the volcano burns everything. And it looks very cool, too, because they make it look like a fiery eagle sometimes or just like the lava has eyes or. Right. It reminds me a little bit. And I kind of hate to make this comparison considering <laughs> the quality of both things. But when it's you see, it's like face dripping with lava and magma. It reminds me of the the fire titan from uh, Hercules a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Though not, you know, it looks way better. <laughs> it looks way better. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Like, you know. So, of course, uh, after the firebird has burned everything and everything looks like ash. And this is when you see the mountain is definitely inspired by Mount St. Helens because it looks like Mount St. Helens post eruption. Mm -hmm. The elk comes back walking along and it kind of stirs up the ash to wake up the sprite again and. She starts to cry and realizes where her tears are hitting. Grass is growing again. So then she turns into a big rain cloud, rains water on everything. And you thought it grew big before. <laughs> <laughs> now it's like a giant forest and growing like huge trees. And, and, and the way the music, you know, kind of swells here. This is the this is the big finish. It's so good. Totally understand why why you cry here like yeah it, it yeah i i literally just got chills thinking about it just now yeah because you're picturing it in your head hear the you can music. hear the music as she's you know making the great everything green again and she's so happy yes yes yeah and it is just this elemental story of you know death and renewal like it's it's the heart of so many myths it's the heart of you know so many so many concepts in in religion and and even just in life you know you you always have like something horrible happened and you have to regrow from it like it's it's relatable on so many levels which i feel like it is that absolute music right i mean it is like the the power of these fantasia movies at their best is being able to communicate something so primal that it goes beyond story mm -hmm. it's just visuals and music and that is enough to make you have a profound connection with something you don't need a story you don't need characters you know that are named in any way right and yeah you you see it all in her smile exactly yep and then it's over <sighs> yep i'm glad there's like there's no you know there's nothing at the end like you can't top that i'm not glad that they go back into pump and circumstance yeah, for but the well, yeah, they do. All the orchestra is packing up and all of the all of the sails with images are flying away. <laughs> but did you notice at the very end, very, very, very end of the credits, Steve Martin has something to say. Yes. Yeah. I love this. This is a good post credit stinger where he's doing the camera on me bit again, and then he asks for a ride home. Yeah. <laughs> What's really funny about that is that is not on my DVD. Really? No. So I was wondering if it's added for Disney Plus because I don't know that it was in the original theatrical release. I can't find out anything about it. Like, when was this added? Man, I'd have I was to looking like, for it. fast forward my whole VHS to see if it was on there or not. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Go do that. We'll pause the podcast. We can meet in an hour. <laughs> Well, it probably doesn't take that long, but still annoying. Yes. Yeah. 
I'm looking it up too. I can't tell either. Mm-hmm. Leonard Malton's website says that the DVD had updated credits, but you said it's not on your DVD, so it's not on my my DVD that I got. That was the two disc set. He doesn't say it has the stinger. It just says that they updated the credits. I mean, they might have changed something, but I didn't like watch it side by side with Disney Plus to see what might have been different. Anyway, on the Disney Plus version, there's a Steve Martin joke. I like it. It's a funny joke. So now it's sort of time for spinoff sequels, remakes, rides and reboots. (laughs) This is a sequel. (laughs) Yeah, this is a sequel. And we already talked about like the crazy Fantasia game. Yep. Um, but mom, you said there was some park presence. There's a little bit. So the uh, World of Color at Disney California Adventure has stuff with the Spring Sprite and the Firebird. And they even had like when World of Color first launched at California Adventure, they had um, like pins with the Spring Sprite. It was like the representative of it, oh, if that yeah. makes sense. So, so, you know, a fairly big role. I don't know if they're going to be changing world of color at all, it wasn't open when I was there in November, they'd actually drained the whole um, lagoon lagoon. I was like, I forget what they call that particular waterway um, and they were working on it. So I don't know if they're going to change world of color so that whether it will still have that, but really other than, you know, you could get some little toys and things, um, pins and stuff. There's not a lot from Fantasia 2000. Mom, you were saying that there was a like a little doll of Rachel. Yes, a plush doll that my mom was real taken with that character. And when she found out that we had it at the Disney store, uh, she wanted me to get it for her. And I saw that somebody was selling one today when I, because I couldn't remember the doll's name and it was bugging me. They were selling it for... With the tags on, and I don't know if my mom still has the tags on, but they were selling it for $59. Definitely more than what I paid for it. (laughs) And I have a mug, which I saw somebody was selling for $10, but that's probably what I paid for it. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure the mugs were $10 originally. (laughs) Yeah. So it wasn't a merchandising movie, which bugged people like Eisner and Katzenberg. Yeah. Although I did see you can get it one of the collectible Disney pins. They have made one of the evil Jack in the Box. Oh my ah, goodness! No. Ah. So I could I, I could have that nightmare <laughs> on my desk here with all my other pins, and it could be staring at me as we record oh, no. every podcast. Yeah, I don't think you need the cursed pins. <laughs> well, I I don't think I need to sleep ever again. I, I've done enough, really. <laughs> So uh, there's there's no sequel. They did plan. They did plan a sequel. They were actually going to try to do like Fantasia 2003 or 2006 or something. Yeah. Which, by the way, horrible title. If they do a third Fantasia movie before the year 3000, like they should just call it something else. I feel like Fantasia. I don't know. Call it Fantasia Musicana, whatever. Give it some (laughs) some silly subtitle. I feel like the only year that's cool enough to be a title is 2000 or again, 3000. Yeah. But don't wait that long. <laughs> but yeah, Fantasia 2006, kind of a letdown. What happened in 2006? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we had actually mentioned when we were doing the original Fantasia episode 
that it looked like they had announced that they were going to put on Disney Plus, uh, like some Fantasia show or collection of shorts that appears to have completely that's vanished fallen by the wayside i don't think they're doing it they have released a bunch of shorts and some of them are you could say in more the fantasia style where it's just music with stuff going on for some of their different shorts but i don't know that i would consider most of them to be like fantasia there are two shorts that were designed for fantasia 2006 that have been released. One is One by One by Pihote Hunt, and this was <laughs> ignominiously released on the Lion King 2 Simba's Pride Special Edition <laughs> DVD. I have not seen it. Uh, it takes its title and inspiration from One by One, a freedom song written and performed by Lebo M for The Lion King. The song was cut from the final film, so... Interesting. I don't know. It takes place in South Africa. Sounds kind of interesting. Again, uh, have not seen it, unfortunately. Would be intrigued. Will not buy that DVD. <laughs> <laughs> Will be looking if there is a legal-ish solution later. The other one is much more notable. It's The Little Match Girl, uh, directed by Roger Allers, who we've talked about, of course. And it was released in 2006, it was released at a film festival. I think it got limited theatrical release and it was mainly on uh, the Little Mermaid Platinum Edition DVD <laughs> because they're both based on Hans Christian Andersen's stories. Yep. And the Little Match Girl, unlike the, the, the short of that, which was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Animated Short, but did not win. Uh, and was also the last ever use of caps, interestingly enough. Oh. After that, of course, even for the 2D animation, it's all computers. It's not computer assisted. It's, it is just computers. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, unlike the, the, the Tin Soldier, this adaptation of Little Match Girl actually keeps the incredibly depressing ending of one of the most depressing <laughs> stories ever, which is the Little Match Girl. Uh, a real, real downer of a of a Christmas story. I actually saw that this one's on Disney Plus. I haven't watched it. I actually during Christmas time, I saw it was on Disney Plus, but I didn't realize its relation to Fantasia at the time. Right. And I was like, I don't want to watch the little match girl. <laughs> no, no, I still don't. Why would I watch the little match girl? I know I was like. That's kind of a depressing story, but I probably will watch it because I just want to know what they did. I wish I had known that it was, you know, related to Fantasia earlier. I'd probably watched it. But if anyone doesn't know, the story of the little match girl is on Christmas in St. Petersburg. There is a little girl who's trying to sell matchsticks. Nobody's willing to buy them. Eventually, it gets so cold, she has to light the matches she's selling for warmth. Every time she lights a match, she imagines what it would feel like to be happy. After all her matches are used up, she dies from hypothermia. That is the entire story. And then, no, no, no. The ending of the story is then the angels come down and her spirit goes up to heaven. That's the happy ending. Yeah. I don't know if they did do that in the Disney version, but that's the story of the little match girl. In the Disney version, she like is remembering her grandmother and her grandmother's spirit finds her because, uh, you know, they don't want to be explicitly religious as to include angels specifically. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's really depressing. It was a story that was written to call attention to how bad, you know, children at the time in Europe had it. It's very effective for that. Really makes you feel empathy 
for the character. Utterly miserable, horrible Christmas watching, guaranteed to ruin your holiday season. Yeah, yeah I don't think I would have wanted to watch it for Christmas. So we don't uh, rate these movies on a numerical scale. We ask each other two questions, and I'm going to add in a third one for this special three-host episode. So would you recommend this movie? Would you show it to a child? And then I'm also curious, do you prefer this or the original Fantasia? We can go ahead and start with you, Mom. Um, I would definitely recommend this movie, and I would also definitely show it to a child. There may be some bits that a child might find mildly scary. The Jack in the Box, as we have mentioned, maybe the Firebird. But both all of the segments really end happily. There isn't anything too dark, I feel like. So, you know, as we always say, you know, your kid, you can watch it first. And because it's a lot shorter, people are more likely to, I feel like, watch it than the original Fantasia. As to which one I prefer, that's hard because in the original Fantasia, there are of the number of segments, there's some that I can take or leave and some that I love, right? And the new Fantasia, Fantasia 2000, I pretty much like all of the segments. There aren't any that I'm like, eh, I kind of feel like skipping that one. I pretty much enjoy them all. And maybe it's a part of the because it's shorter mm-hmm. in general. So I don't feel like You know, I don't have as much time. I'll just watch part of it like I might with the original Fantasia. I never really fall asleep to Fantasia 2000 like I sometimes do to the original Fantasia. But you you can't fall asleep during Firebird. Yeah. Too loud, too shocking. Um, The only one you might be able to fall asleep to is the the one with the whales from the beginning. You know, the the Pines of Rome has some sleepy bits, but you've just started the movie, so you're not really that sleepy yet, you know? Pump and Circumstance is slow enough, I feel, you could sleep to it, except that you'll be like, ugh, (laughs) it's just bringing me back to my high school graduation. So there's probably as much, you know, I'm sure there are are 75 minutes of the original Fantasia that I absolutely love just as much as I love Fantasia 2000. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So it's hard to pick. Probably the original one, though. If I had to pick between the two. Yeah, go ahead, Grandma. Uh, Would you recommend this movie? Would you show it to a child? Do you prefer it to the original Fantasia? Um, I would definitely recommend it. Though the other day when I mentioned something about doing this podcast and we were going to do Fantasia 2000, the person was like, oh, I've never seen that. And I could tell from their lack of enthusiasm in their voice that they weren't interested. (laughs) So I know there are those... Uh, Cretans out there who don't appreciate (laughs) (laughs) classical music and I would recommend it and I would show it to a child and I think especially because you're not going to be showing a little kid on the IMAX these huge scary images yeah there's not that much for them to be scared of they just depending on their age whether they would get bored but um, I think you know it's good uh, introduction to music also, I think, the original as well as that one, and also to animation as more than just big, long fairy tale story. There's uh, so many different techniques to animation, and um, it is hard to choose if I had to choose one above the other. Isn't it? Because... There's stuff I love about both of them. And like I said, I was just so emotionally 
involved with Fantasia 2000, but I wouldn't want to give up the original. Well, it's not like you have to give it up. It's just which one, you know. Well, I know. I know. But I mean, if like if I were going to like. Gonna, if you're going to go sit down and watch one, which are you more likely to pick? You, you don't have to decide. It's an interesting uh, uh, thought experiment, I think, but I don't want to. It's no reason to, to stress <laughs> out over it. This isn't legally binding, except for all the libel mom says. Can't stress enough. <laughs> Everything she says specifically. No, by the way, parody satire. Um, <laughs> OK, so uh, I would easily recommend this movie, of course. I mean, by default, it's got to be a top three uh, Disney package film. <laughs> yeah. And uh, certainly the best package film post 1949, <laughs> because it's the only one. <laughs> Right. Other than unless you count Winnie the Pooh, actually, if you count, yeah, Winnie, you have the to Pooh, count Winnie the Pooh, that one that one's a little better. Maybe I don't know. I just love that movie. That's a personal favorite. Yeah. Neither here nor there would definitely show to a child uh, at worst. You know, it's Fantasia. So like you could skip right over the scary Jack in the box if you think it's too scary and, you know, you're not missing the plot. Yeah. <laughs> But I have to say, I'm a little surprised how conflicted you two are, because I felt that the and this is not wrong. This is a subjective opinion. Yeah. But I felt that the original Fantasia was a lot stronger than this one. I do like this one a lot. Mm -hmm. There's something about it. It's going to be hard for me to articulate, I think, because these movies are so based on feeling that the original one you know, was known originally as the concert film internally. And that movie really has this feeling of, I I said it in that episode, I'm pretty sure, it has the feeling of going to a really great concert. That's true. Even though you're watching the cartoons and everything, it almost just feels like this is what going to a cool concert feels like visualized um and i feel like there's more non-literal stuff there's the soundtrack which i love you know just the fact that you have one narrator throughout and you have an intermission and you see the instruments tuning up and i realize that's not what they were going for with this for this they were going for what is the you know push animation to its limits that's cool too but like having the different narrators in this having this the cgi that looks slightly more dated in my opinion it doesn't quite have the same magical feel to me of like, right, this is a movie that somehow impossibly like true Disney magic manages to literalize the experience of going to a great classical concert. You know, it it, it maybe doesn't feel as classy, not to say that it's not classy or classless, but again, just like only having Mickey and silhouette in that one moment, mm-hmm. having it be, you know, Deems Taylor and Leopold Stokowski, not necessarily narrators, but people who did the kind of work they're doing in that movie. I just, I, I think it's really magical. But again, I love this movie too. And I mean, this movie could be seven segments of garbage and the Firebird, and I'd still come out being like, that was a terrific movie. <laughs> that was a that was time well spent. And I do also agree with your point, Mom. I was thinking of this too. I totally agree that I liked every segment in this and Fantasia has a couple of sleepers. Yeah. But for some reason, even that makes it feel more cohesively like a concert. Yeah, Yeah, because there's always some music you don't care about as much, right? That's true. Exactly. It's, It's weird, but having the ups and downs almost makes it feel more relatable in that sense. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. That's my subjective opinion. Well, I mean, you have to say, too, that you know, the original Fantasia, that was a very unique idea. Yeah. 
Right. Whereas Fantasia 2000 was just building on something that was done before. I will say, listening to you describe your feelings about it, Isaac, made me think part of what I think I love so much about Fantasia 2000 was kind of the getting excited about it coming, right? right? Which you don't have. Mom and I both have that where we had the buildup. They're doing more Fantasia. It's so exciting. We're going to, you know, go see it on the IMAX. Oh my gosh, it's so amazing. It's so beautiful. I can't believe how wonderful it is, you know. Um, Whereas for you, even though it came out in your lifetime, they probably both feel like, you know. You've known them both. They've always been there for you. They do. Yeah, Yeah. That's absolutely correct. I think that's partly why we're a little more conflicted about it because we have, you know, for me, of course, Fantasia, it's been there. I've loved it, but... I don't have the hype about it. (laughs) And that's totally valid. I have had those same kinds of magical theater experiences. Grandma, I loved hearing you talk about, you know, having that personal stake working at the Disney company and going to IMAX and just being over so overwhelmed you had to cry. I think that is one of like the great experience. That is why I love movies. Honestly, if we, you know, if we can be totally earnest, like those sorts of experiences are what make this such an incredible medium And, you know, whatever. I didn't happen to have that same experience. That's fine. It doesn't invalidate yours, which is clearly wonderful. I think overall the difference, and it's not a better or worse difference, but I think it is a difference. Fantasia, the original, is the singular vision of Walt Disney. A ton of people worked on it. A lot of other people contributed to it. You know, we talked about Stokowski himself, but it is ultimately one thing from beginning to end. And it really was the singular vision, as you said, Grandma, a completely unique vision of a crazy man (laughs) who was doing something nobody else who has ever lived would ever have thought to have done, Uh, which is great. Whereas Fantasia 2000, it is all different people. Each segment is, you know, a different person's vision. Each introductory segment uh, is different and has kind of a different feel to it. It is more of a package film in that sense, even though Fantasia is also a collection of shorts, feels a little more unified. It's not better. It is different. It was weird when I was reading stuff. One person said that the reason Fantasia 2000 didn't do as well was because it was too similar to the original Fantasia. (laughs) And somebody else said that it was too different from the original Fantasia. And I'm like, oh. Exactly. (laughs) A Fantasia sequel could not possibly have pleased, like, everyone. Right. 60 years of expectations on this thing. And again, it did quite well. The only problem was Roy E. Disney had spent so much money. He definitely did not just spend the VHS money. (laughs) He spent so much money on it that even still, it, it didn't really turn a profit. And then they spent so much to market. Again, you have to pay off building an IMAX theater. Yep. That's not cheap. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) It's true. So that's going to do it for Fantasia 2000. Thank you very much for being on the show, Grandma Becky. We really appreciate having you. That was fun. We've been really excited to have you. <laughs> Can't imagine this podcast or indeed, you know, the, the love of Disney that runs through this family without you. Thanks. We always joke that my mom has little mouse ears on her blood cells. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which means we probably got them too. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's right. So mom and I uh, will be back next week (laughs) (laughs) Uh, with 2000s Dinosaur, one of the episodes I have genuinely been looking forward to the most. Neither of us has seen this movie. Mom, uh, what do you think of it? (laughs) I know almost nothing about this movie. (laughs) Perfect. I'm excited. Grab Becky, you have actually seen Dinosaur. Yes. Not a lot of people have. What What do you think of Dinosaur? What should we What should we be looking forward to as we are are surprised by this movie for the first time? <laughs> we saw so many previews for it. It was like, oh my word! I was like, sometimes I just don't want to see something when I feel like I've been totally bombarded. Um, I get contrary. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably why I never watched it. So we didn't go to the. Th- theater I don't believe to see it but then we finally did see it on TV I guess and I was like you know this is pretty good we were pleasantly surprised I mean there was some (laughs) stuff I was like oh brother you know because just the way they told the stories once in a while was just not the way I wanted it to go but (laughs) it was a fun movie we liked the music and I didn't realize until even though we saw so many previews I didn't realize how they made it until we saw it actually saw it and I was like oh that's what they were talking about so but I won't say anything else about that (laughs) I'm even more intrigued now I have to say that is a perfect teaser so until next time I'm me And I'm Mom. And I'm Grandma Becky. (laughs) (laughs) And it all started with a mouse enchanting some brooms. (laughs) 